The Word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. So hear the Word of the Living Lord as we have it here in this text in the Gospel according to Matthew. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Men fail because they are fallen, and of course uh, fallen men beget failure. It's really the case study that is before us as our Lord uh, responds to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are fallen leaders that are leading the nation astray. That's true of all of us. And so we will see a dramatic shift in our text this morning as our Lord moves from fallen leaders of a fallen nation to the success of the Trinity to save the people of God. Verses 1 to 7 constitutes a series of warnings as Jesus speaks to his followers. I remind you that it is the week of the Passion. It is the last week of our Lord's life as man. His divinity, of course, is eternal. But it is also our Lord's last discourse. I think it's very instrumental. He turns in his last discourse to the failings of national leaders and ultimately to the success of of the triune God. It is a response to his antagonists. They have come to question him as the great lawgiver, as the author of the law of Moses, as the greatest lawyer of all times. They come as fallen lawyers to sharpen their minds against presumably Uh, the broken mind of the Lord Jesus. It's an incredible story of contrast, the pride of these men who think they can best the eternal lawgiver. Again, 
element of their failings as uh, national leadership and our need for uh, Christ to succeed on our behalf. They are in harm's way, and Jesus is going to tell them why they are in harm's way. Uh, the attack is against, as I've suggested, the scribes and the Pharisees, the professional caste of teachers and leaders in contemporary Judaism. But I remind you by way of application, I'm not much of a church historian. Perhaps I should say I'm an aspiring one at that. But it's most instructive to me as you look over the history of denominationalism, it's just a movement of failure in many respects. I'm not saying all of them, but certainly many of them began well, but they have long since left the way. It's a reminder of a professional class uh, that begins to fail in leading the people. Uh, their lifestyle is dangerous and evokes three warnings. First, they have taken the place of Moses and usurped his role as divine lawgiver by missing the who and the what of the law. All of the law of the Old Testament was to point to Christ. All of it. The synchronistic whole of the law was love of God and love of neighbor. They, they missed every aspect of that, and that is why they are failing. They purport to be teachers of the law. They have flunked every course in confronting Christ. Jesus, of course, unseats Moses as he fulfills the law. He is God and he comes to succeed where the Old Covenant has failed. That was the point of the Old Covenant. It was marked at every point with failure, and so God comes to succeed. Christ is that God who comes to effect success. Uh, furthermore, he is the only mediator accepted by heaven. I ask you would turn to one of the great expressions of the Gospel in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand, the majesty on high, waiting for that time onward, till his enemies are made the footstool of his feet, for by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It speaks to the failure of the old covenant. It had to be continually repeated. It speaks to the success of Christ, which he offers one sacrifice that is totally unrepeatable because of its eternal perfections. The failure of the human institution that pointed to Christ, and now Christ has come, and the infinite success of Christ as the last great high priest. Success and failure. The nation is failing because their lawyers have perverted the law. Christ comes as the eternal lawgiver in radical success. A particular issue at play here is the outworking of their office. They preach, but they do not practice. It's a disease that infects all of us. It does not infect Christ because of his eternal perfections. It's not a new charge. Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, our great God is cursing the tribe of Levi. Again, they were the teachers of the law. 
Israel. Uh, the priests were not teaching, and as the priests go, so go the people. The outcome is stated for us by the prophet Malachi. He says they have left the way and caused the people to stumble. They have corrupted the covenant and show partiality and instruction, or if you will, my commentary, nepotism to the wealthy and the, po and the powerful. Again, uh, it's a vice that's so present today in the life of the church. I oftentimes wonder in terms of the church in the United States, the contemporary church and the age in which we live, if it is not wholesale left the teaching ministry of the Word of God. We're all about drama, short little homilies. The tribe of Levi was to teach the law to point to the coming of Christ. We're to teach the Scriptures today retrospectively of the majesty of God and all that He has done for us in Jesus Christ. We need much more than short little homilies, much more than drama much more than entertainment in the life of the church. Secondly, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on the people. In their quest to protect the law, they produce law upon law. It's much like our own legislative branches of government. We have one law to encompass everything about one aspect of life, but our legislators think that we need 10,000 laws. I read a contemporary, very popular business magazine this past issue that the laws are so numerous and burdensome in America today that every professional probably commits a felony three times throughout the year, unknowingly commits a felony. Because those laws are so overreaching and so great and so burdensome and so encompassing of every aspect of our life whether you know it or not, you've broken the law and are liable for some civil or perhaps even criminal penalty. It's exactly what the lawyers in Israel had done. Law upon law upon law. I reminded you a couple of weeks ago of a great tragedy in New York City when a Jewish mother could not work upon the Sabbath, namely turn off a hot plate. And so there was a fire that killed all of her children. I would tell you that's a pretty burdensome law when you can't even turn off a hot plate. Uh, but that's the way of man. We think that we can add something to the greatness of God. And the moment you think that you can add something to the greatness of God, you have degraded Him automatically. He cannot be added to. Perfection needs no addition and can brook no subtraction. What we need to recover in the teaching ministry of the church is the divine perfection upon which all life exists today. Again, the results were great burden to the people. The scribes were the ancient legalists. They created demands and traditions above the divine in the pretense of helping God out. Now again, I remind you of the inherent contradiction to that. If God needs our help, then He's not God. And so Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
The word rest speaks of divine perfection, the rest of God having completed the work of creation in Genesis 2 and having completed the work of spiritual creation, our Lord rests and takes his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because he is tired? No, because he has finished the work and we are to rest in him. The greatness of the majesty of God respecting the beginning and the end of our salvation that we can be at rest because he has completed the work. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. We now have peace with God because he accomplished eternal redemption. The entire point of the law was to brook our failures. The entire point of the lawgiver was to beckon us to flee to him in his infinite and eternal success. To leave our works aside for the successes of his every work and the divine perfection. Thirdly, what they do, they do for show. The world's recognition, titles, the applause of men. It's just simply the incredible disease of a fallen humanity. Infected with pride. And so even in the church, we have title after title after title. I don't quite think I've ever really understood all the different titles that some denominations have. It's a way of man. As if some can uh, achieve a higher step on the ladder and so they get a new title. They once were a private, now they're a colonel or a general. It's not the words in the church, but I think you understand the point of my metaphor. When all of us are to be humbled in light of the majesty of God and his perfections and that every title ought to go to him. And Jesus will very soon in this text shift to that great truth. That our utter human titles are but vanity upon vanity. The only real titles belong to him in light of who he is and what he has done. Again, just a great illustration here in the text that uh, what they do, they do for, for show and for the applause of men. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 is a reference to the laws that speaks to phylacteries. Phylacteries were a small little box that uh, the Orthodox would tie upon their hands, tie upon their foreheads, uh, containing some measure of the law. Uh, as if we can wear something and that impresses God. I mean, think about that. The point was not what you wear, it's what you do with your hands, what you think with your mind. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and the 18th verse. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. But the point of the text is the parallelism that they're impressed upon your hands in terms of what you do, impressed upon your mind in terms of what you think, not the literal or the physical. What an easy thing it is to do to wear some robe in church as if you're something special. And I'm not preaching a sermon today against robes. I know it's quite popular in some traditions, but they don't do anything uh, because whatever we wear is not going to bring us closer to God. It's what we are in the inside out. The heart. 
But again, Orthodox Judaism, they bind this to their hands and their foreheads. Would that in the grace of God, we would think it and do it. And soon that will be the case in God's grace. Very soon in this text. Tassels. Numbers chapter 15. Verses 38 and 39. Again, it's a physical element of dress. It was a point to a greater spiritual element. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. Speak to the sons of Israel, tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all of the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them, and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. It's not as an external act, but a spiritual provocation uh, to remember the word of the law, uh, to turn to the Lord for the grace of God in the doing thereof. They just did it for show. All of these were physical realities pointing to the heart. And so the leaders of Israel have failed, and therefore the people in following the fallen leaders of Israel are marked for failure. Jesus now shifts from the negative to the positive, from prescriptions to avert judgment, uh, to the work of the Trinity that brooks success for the people of God. Uh, Christ is going to turn away from the works of men to the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The prescriptions, of course, to stay our Lord's indictments are divine, verses 8 to 10. Jesus turns us from divine, pardon me, from human titles to divine titles. And it's not the titles per se, it's the content of the titles or the function of the titles that is the success of our salvation. We begin with the title rabbi. The word rabbi is literally my great one. It's a tough, that's a tough title to fulfill for a man, but obviously present in Judaism today. My great one. Uh, you know, you'd think if someone called you that, you'd get embarrassed because we all know of our failures. We all have feet of clay. But men love titles, do they not? Father, of course, uh, again, 8th verse, uh, pardon me, the word teacher, uh, is turned to speak to our Lord. Uh, and so, while they have feel, failed in their teaching ministries, our, our Lord will now succeed as the one teacher. The next title is that of uh, Father. Uh, do not call anyone on earth your father, for your one father is uh, the God in heaven. Again, turns them from the human title to the divine. Uh, the last title is uh, 
Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. You can see the shift in the text from uh, human titles to the divine. Shifting away from men to God. I would remind you that in all of the aspects of life at Grace Bible Church that we should be given uh, to looking at the divine. Men fail. The best of men fail. Uh, J.C. Ryle, one of the great prominent leaders of uh, English uh, Reformation, once said that the best of men are men at best. It's a great reminder. I know there beats within our hearts the love of being called, I don't know, reverend. Used to have a friend of mine who used to mock me. I don't use that title, but he would call me on the phone. I'd answer the phone. He would say, reverend, mocking me. And again, I took it in jest, but because who is reverend? Who is special but the majesty of, of the divine? Again, I understand there are some offices in the New Testament, but uh, we should be very careful about fixing men with what they cannot fix themselves. It can only be accomplished by the divine majesty. The point is to get your eyes off of men to the majesty of God. We shun the titles because the Trinity fulfills them. That's really what Jesus is saying. The professional teaching class, uh, Israel, has captured these titles, rabbi, leader, oh great one, uh, teacher. The reason we are shifting is because the professional class has failed and the people are going to fail with them, so we come now to the divine. The first divine title, verse 8, is teacher. We have a teacher, verse 8. For one is your teacher. There is, I think, here a couple of things going on. Uh, I think the first is an echo of the new covenant as stated in the Old Testament, book of Jeremiah, chapter 31 in verses 33 and 34. The prophet is uh, looking forward to the coming and the institution of a new covenant because he instinctively knows that the old covenant uh, is failure. And so we need a teacher. And so Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, uh, my, my covenant with them, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. See the majesty there? The failure of the human teacher's God simply writes it on our hearts. He becomes our teacher. 
It's a great expression of the grace of God. We need to be taught. The ultimate reality of teaching is that God teaches us by invading our hearts and writing his law upon our hearts so that internally we live out the practice of the law even though as fallen humanity, as believers in Christ, because he has indelibly stamped his law upon our souls. And the great teacher has invaded us, the great pedagogue of all time. It is, it is another prophecy that's constituted by the prophet Isaiah. You have your Old Testaments, and I trust you do. Isaiah chapter 54 in the 13th verse. As you're turning there, I remind you, all of us have beloved teachers. Uh, I will simply confess to you, I've forgotten most everything that my algebra teacher ever hoped to teach me in high school. But when God teaches, it takes and is never forgotten. Isaiah 54 and the 13th verse. On all of your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. This text is quoted by our Lord in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, meaning that it has a beginning fulfillment in the ministry of our Lord. In other words, he is the divine teacher. John chapter 6 and the 45th verse. We read, and it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, the new covenant has begun in Christ. The Father has started it in Christ. People are coming to Christ because the Father is their teacher. And the Father is an effective teacher. In the doctrines of grace, we have this phrase, efficacious grace. My point to you from this great divine title is that God is an efficacious teacher. He teaches, and the instinctive response of a soul regenerated by God and brought to Christ is that we learn. We cannot help but learn because he is an efficacious teacher, and we can never forget what he has taught us in his eternal work of grace in teaching us. One of the great and most genuine evidences of the new birth is a love for the Word of God. It is simply a divine miracle that God begets within us new life in Christ and something radical happens. We formerly did not like the Bible. We never read the Bible. It just simply took up a cubbyhole on our many shelves. But now something radical has happened. We begin to love the Word, to read it, to desire it, to internalize it, and not just that, but to live it. And the living is the product of the life that God has given to us in the new birth. Praise God, we have a divine teacher who's efficacious, and therefore we learn. It's a cause-effect reality of the grace of God. I'm not unmindful that God uses the means of earthly teachers but only in validation of the inward truth stamped upon our hearts by the Spirit of God. That ultimately we owe all of our learning, as minuscule as it is, to the fact that God taught us. 
The Christian life is a life of continual learning, continual teaching. God starts it all and progresses with it throughout our entire lives. For it is a teaching ministry that has begun in Christ and will continue until eternal glory and throughout all time of the majesty of God because God is an infinite subject. And therefore the teaching is progressive and eternal in and of itself. And I'm so thankful that ultimately God is our teacher because he does not fail. In terms of the Christian life, I understand that our learning in many cases is progressive and in part. But in all of the eternities, we won't get back papers that say C-. minus. When God teaches, we learn, we grow, and we advance because of the grace of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God. Secondly, our Heavenly Father is now our divine provider, verse 9. I've often kind of struggled <laughs> because I have friends in the Anglican commun or Episcopal communion, and I always want to show them deference and respect and call them Father. I mean, I understand they've worked hard, but I always kind of struggle with this text, Father. It says you have one Father, the Father who is in the heavens. It speaks to God the Father as our eternal provider. It is a reminder of the benevolence and kindness of God to all of us who are his sons. He is not just God. He is God as our Father, with tenderly care, great benevolence and great love. For every father in this room who loves his children, we have a heavenly Father who loves us with an infinite, divine, perfect love. In the spiritual realm, our only Father is God. I, I love the prayer we oftentimes recite. An exemplary prayer, prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Most instructive, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Isn't it wonderful that our Father is in heaven, unassailable by all the courts and armies of men? The great battleships of the Second World War cannot get at the living God to unseat him. And neither can the nuclear weapons of our arsenals today. He is in heaven. He rules over everyone and everything. His providence governs all his creatures and all of their actions. But for the church, he is our Father. Tenderly care. We go to him with all of the difficulties of life, wounded and beat up, but he is our Father who is in heaven with a hallowed name to be revered in light of who he is and what he does for us. And notice everything that he does in the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God will be done on earth. That's the reason we go to him. It's a prayer that will be answered. Thy kingdom come, it will come. It has already come in Christ. It is only growing until one day it covers every aspect as the water covers the sea. Give us our daily bread. I love the words in the psalmist. I am young 
Now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous begging bread. Because God provides for his own. It's the nature of his heavenly care. It's an incredible reminder of God's goodness to us. Forgive us as we forgive others. We're provoked to forgive in light of the fact that we are a forgiven people. I love verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Deliver us from evil. A prayer that will be answered for the church because he is our heavenly father. Evil abounds. Evil seems to be progressing. But no, God is progressing to recover his church, to create it, to sustain it, to give it life, and to introduce it into the heavenly glory. Because of the object of our prayers, Father, every aspect of that prayer that I've just read through will be answered because we are his sons, his children. Lastly, we are to reject the title of leader because Christ is our leader, verse 10. It's a very interesting word. I wish I could bring some illumination to it by the word itself, but it's only used here in the entirety of the New Testament. But the theology is used everywhere, is it not? The meaning is clear. Jesus goes before us as the divine guide to the way of God, meaning we have a leader to show us the way and to lead us in the way, to keep us in the way. That in every aspect, the words of the Apostle Peter, we are being kept by the power of God because of Christ who is our efficacious leader, our sovereign leader. Second chapter, book of Hebrews, speaks to the outcome of our Lord's leading in the 10th verse. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. How can it be that we are the sons of the living God and he will bring us and take us and show us to everlasting glory in bringing many sons to glory? All along the way we will fail and stumble. All along the way we will confess and repent. But in the end, we will be taken to glory. Because he is our leader. Efficacious at that. It's not in our success, but in his. In bringing us to glory. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, having become a high priest, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a forerunner. He's gone before us. He is a trailblazer. He has blazed the trail. It's not Hansel and Gretel leaving a few breadcrumbs. Well, I hope you see him. Hope you can pick up a few and figure it out. For the Christian, it is a trail so blazed it is as if it is 
is marked all along the way by the sharpest and brightest lights of all time in the Word of God. We cannot fail to see it because He has gone before us. We're not like the children of the cave groping about in darkness because we have a different forerunner, the great leader of the church, Jesus Christ. Become very fond of the 73rd Psalm as I occasion to read it to my mother. Guide us in thy counsel and afterwards receive us to glory. He's going to guide us in his counsel because he's the eternal teacher. He's going to make sure that we learn it because he's efficacious. And after it's all said and done, he will lead us to glory because we are his sons. You can see the majesty of the divine titles and what they mean for the church. And that every human title ought to fall away into utter oblivion in light of the majesty of him who sits on high. Afterwards, lead us to glory. Incredible. Christ our leader. How shall we get to glory? Christ our leader. How shall we make it? Christ our leader. And our leader does not fail. He does not leave us to wander self-directed because we are his children and his sons. I stagger in my own estimation of so much of American evangelicalism as if God says to us, well, now you've become one of my sons. Good luck. I hope you make it. Maybe you'll get a second work of grace along the way. Maybe you'll figure it out. What kind of nonsense is that in terms of a failing theology? Even as parents, we wouldn't brook that for our infant children, our beloved sons and daughters, and so it is with the divine. He comes, invades our hearts, teaches us subjectively so that objectively we have the word of God. He comes to love us and to keep us like fathers love their sons. And all along the way, he leads us to heavenly glory. You know, my favorite, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. If you're turning there, I remind you of so much of the higher life movement in American Christianity. That at some point you, you kind of get it and you get a second work of grace and you achieve some higher state in Christian life. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and the 14th verse, as many as are the sons of God, these are being led by the Spirit of God. If you're a son, you get the Spirit. If you get the Spirit, you're being led all along the way. Much like a loving mother would hold fast the hand of a beloved daughter in crossing a a dangerous street, so our God takes us by the hand and leads us as sheep by the great shepherd. In the Old Testament, he did it by Moses and Aaron, Psalm 77. In the New Testament, he does by the greater Moses and the greater Aaron in the Lord Jesus Christ. Particular office, I think, is fulfilled by the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes to lead his sons and to never leave them. 
I think the point of the equation that I bring to you from Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, if there is ever a time that you're not being led by the Spirit, then you're not a son of God. I understand that there is a great tension to that text because sometimes we end up in the highways and byways of life. I sometimes understand that as Christians we seemingly are caught in a cul-de-sac. The point of the majesty of the sovereignty of God is that there are no mistakes in eternity and that the divine hand of God is heavy upon us to lead us to glory, to teach us all along the way, to trust in Him and to walk by faith and not by sight. So many in American Christianity think that you can become a son of God and then at some point fall away. To me, that says more about God than it does about fallen humanity. If I could slip the hands of the gravity of the majesty of the hand of God, then his divinity would unravel. And my friend, that is unthinkable. Intolerable. No object of hope in that kind of God. And so, Jesus turns away from the fallen titles of men places them in the divine, reminding us that they will come to pass, they will be accomplished. Where men have failed, he will succeed. That God is leading us all along the way. Great application of this, is there not, in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, my sheep hear my voice. Why do we hear the voice of Christ? Because he's an efficacious teacher. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. He comes to claim his own. It's the great leader. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they, you know the words, they follow me. We could do nothing else because he is the great shepherd. The instinctive response of the soul regenerated by God is that we follow the shepherd. There are many shepherds in life today. All of them fall save one. The great shepherd of the sheep. The point of that text is that he is the great shepherd. Ancient Near East kings were shepherds. Christ is the king shepherd for the church. We will follow him. He goes on to say in the 29th verse, all that the Father has given me, I lose none. I shall raise them up on the last day. So much of semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism, we can fall away from grace. I guess Christ missed that lesson. John chapter 10. My friend, he is the great king shepherd. He loses none of those given to him by the Father in sovereign election. Can't be otherwise, because he's the good shepherd. The point of the text and the divine titles that fall to the triune God is to stoke your soul to heat in love for the majesty of God and all that he is. It's done for you. If you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I simply point you to Him who alone can give you life, draw you unto Himself. All the way to heaven, we have a master guide. I love the prayer constituted by the hymnist. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim in this barren land. 
a cry of the heart. We need God to guide us. And that's exactly what God does to us as his pilgrims in this barren land all the way to heaven. It is a prayer. Another hymnist will answer the prayer for us. There are many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We're being led by the divine God, the great King Shepherd. He will take us there, lead us there, and show us his great success. And by application, may it stoke our hearts to the praise of him who alone is worthy. The second prescription to avert judgment is a different lifestyle, verses 10 to 12. Ends with the outworking of the divine titles. The divine provision in the person of God is meant to humble us. That is a chief characteristic of the Christian life, humility. I hope all of you at some point in your life read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. In it, Calvin says, the way to success as a Christian is in three rules. Humility, humility, humility. If you understand who God is and what he has done, there is one instinctive response. You are humbled. And so we are servants. Jesus served us. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2. He served us and took upon himself humanity as our servant. Simply the way of God that it rejects the way of the world. Our world is infatuated with love and power and money and wealth and riches and titles. There's no way to success in the kingdom of God. The lowly servants is the way of God. Lowly servant in light of the grandeur of God. The two go together. You will never understand what it means to be a servant of God until you understand who God is as king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Humility. Thank God that he teaches us because we would not learn that lesson left to our own devices. In our faith, God finds us. That's the gospel. God succeeds as Father, Son, and Spirit, and we are provisioned and taught and led. And thank God it is so, for He is leading us to glory. The evidence before us this morning is the sacrament of the Lord's table. God knows that all along the way we grow hungry and thirsty. He comes to provision us.